And uh, we're going to go ahead and turn in God's Word. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're starting a new series this morning, so you've come at a perfect time. And so, church, we're walking through this letter, 1 Peter. We're going to study this text together. Uh, and in a way, really, this connects back to where we left off before Easter, where we were talking for those two Sundays about uh, roots and reach. And even just a moment ago, we're, we're reading from Colossians that these friends would be rooted in him and then look at them go as they reach out into the world and share good news. So, so let's not forget, Brook Hills, where we've been in Roots and Reach and be continually thinking about that as we prepare for coming days and this initiative that we have as a church. So very thankful for this opportunity to walk through this letter together. The, the name of the series is Unstoppable. We're going to spend six Sundays, we could easily spend 12, but we're going to spend six in this letter, and, and I would submit to you here at the outset that this letter is about the, uh, the cultivation of a, a countercultural community, a people who are marked by the hope that's found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And this community of hope is unstoppable. They just keep moving. D despite the pushback and hostility of the world and the environment in which they live there in 64 or 65 AD, they just keep marching forward with this good news. And right here in the middle of this letter are these famous words. They might be familiar to you if you're familiar with 1 Peter, where, where he says to the Christians, be ready. Be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. So it's a community and he's saying, you've got hope this world needs. You need to be ready to tell them where you got it. And then he says, and when you tell them, tell them in a way that's winsome. Not just drum-banging pharisaical holiness, condescending against the world around you. Do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. Be, be diplomatic. Be tactful. Be strategic. Be missionaries in your culture. And so I would, I would say to us, even as we start this letter, I'm going to start reading in just a moment, that first Peter presents to us, uh, if you will, another way to win the world, <laughs> Not, not doing it with angry faces and angry spirits and truth grenades lobbed over the wall. It's, it's another way. It's a winsome way. It's, it's the way of, of out-rejoicing our critics. It's the way of enduring hardship with, with poise, with, with dignity, quiet godliness. It's, it's winning the world by telling good news and removing the barriers that would hinder people from running to Jesus. And that's what we see all throughout this letter, and we're going to look at it more closely. But we're starting right here at the, at the outset, 1 Peter chapter 1. Follow along as I read from verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We're going to focus particularly on these verses, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's at the return of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though, you, though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So you see that pattern, sufferings and then glories following. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. I want to remind us of something this morning that I hope we already know, and it's this. Jesus has not promised us a trouble-free life. That's not our way. It's sufferings and glories follow. That's the pattern of Jesus. It's the pattern for the Christian life. Jesus didn't promise that the church would always have a position of ascendancy in the culture, kind of cultural prominence, a seat at the table of those in the halls of power or the thought leaders of the day. That's not promised to us by Jesus. The great apologist G.K. Chesterton famously said, Jesus promised his disciples three things that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. That's so good, that's so true right here in this letter. Completely fearless, absurdly happy, so he's talking about joy inexpressible and filled with glory and in constant trouble, that is this letter. First Peter 1, if you go back into that setting there in 64 AD, things aren't going well. For our ancestors in the faith, I asked a good friend of mine, he, uh, he lives here, he's a college professor, he did his PhD work in this period of time, early Christianity and Second Temple Judaism, and I asked him, give me, give me insight into, because I'm reading different opinions and commentaries about what was going on in the early church, particularly in the environment of persecution. So what were things like, and he shared some things back and forth, and then he sent me an article, and the article was entitled this. The Christians, as the Romans saw them, superstitious, obstinate, depraved, and foolish. That was their situation. That's what the world thought of them. They weren't invited to the table. Hey, tell us what you think. That's not what was. They were marginalized. They were isolated. They were a sect. They were fools. And just by reading this letter, you can pick up that air of disdain that they're picking up from the culture around them. But here's the point. 
even though you can pick up that there's suffering and that there's disdain and slander from the watching world, Peter isn't yelling and screaming. He's not saying the sky is falling. He's not saying, oh, I wish Rome liked us more. He's not yelling about that. He's not worried about that. What Peter is doing is right after he says, yes, you're exiles. There's no sense denying it. You're living as exiles. Yes, this isn't your home. Yes, this isn't comfortable. But then he speaks to a group of people shamed by this world. And what does he say to these Christians scattered throughout what is modern-day Turkey? He says, praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's just going on and on. He's saying we've got reason to praise our God. It's an amazing thing. It makes no sense, this letter in that situation in first century Rome. And what is Peter saying? He's saying right here at the outset, he's saying Christian friends living in exile, things aren't what they seem. There's more than what meets the eye. You have something real, invisible, but real. It's not passing away. And he's saying, don't envy this world. Essentially, he's saying, the world should be envying you. He starts out that way. Its wealth, its power is fading wealth and fading power. Yours isn't. You have true wealth. You have true power. You have true lasting hope. That's why we have here at the top of our outline the aim of 1 Peter. The advancement of the gospel through quietly dignified and godly Christians who bear witness to a hope that outlasts the fading glories of this world. Let me read that again. The advancement of the gospel, this is what he's gunning for, the advancement of the gospel through quietly dignified and godly Christians who bear witness, so they're talking too, they're not just living, they're bearing witness to a hope that outlasts the fading glories of this world. And the reason I've named this message True Wealth is because Paul, is, uh, rather Peter, he's, um, he's using this metaphor of wealth, right, in, in verse four. He says, you have an inheritance that's imperishable. He says in verse 7, the Christian has something more valuable than gold which perishes. So he's pivoting on this, this controlling word picture, this inheritance picture. So what do we have as Christians? We have three things. The first is this. We have a secure inheritance. We have a secure Inheritance. This letter is written to exiles. They're facing troubles of all kinds, and we're going to see those unpacked as we move through the letter. And yet, again, Peter's emphasis is elsewhere. He's not kicking up dust and moaning and groaning and whining about the situation of Christians in the world. He's got better things to do. And he wants to direct the Christian's eyes to better things that are true of them than just the fact that they're exiles. What, well, what else are we? He says, chosen you're chosen, you've been picked by God. And he said, you, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, what's that sanctification word means? It means you've been singled out. You've been set apart. You have, God has a purpose for your life and he set you apart for a purpose. So you've been chosen and singled out. You've been cleansed by the death of Jesus Christ. His blood has been applied to your life and your sins are gone. 
So right out of the gate in the first couple of verses, chosen, sanctified, cleansed and bought, grace and peace are yours. And then he says, according to his great mercy, so it's grace, peace, not just mercy, but great mercy, you've been born again to a living hope. So we're just a few verses in and he's saying, chosen, singled out, bought, grace, peace, great mercy, living hope. You've been set up, set up to succeed, set up to have hope in this world. You have living hope, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, Peter needed to know something about living hope because Peter knew a whole lot about false hope. Peter had placed his hope in all the wrong things. 35 years before he writes this letter, it's Holy Week, and his whole world falls apart on Holy Week. Right, you catch him on Thursday night of Holy Week before Jesus dies and is crucified, and what's Peter doing? He's saying, I've never known the man. I've, you know, the day before, he's saying, I'll march with you to death. And then here he is, denying that he's ever known Jesus. He failed himself. This is crushing blow to his own pride. He denied Jesus not just once, not just twice, but three times. And the third time, the text says that he looked and Jesus caught his eye across the courtyard. He and Jesus meet eyes as he is denying that he knows Jesus Christ. He had lost hope in himself. He had lost hope in the promise of God, right, when things didn't turn out the way that he thought. He thought Jesus was the Messiah, And you ask him, what does the Messiah do? He comes and he takes the throne and he kicks out the filthy Gentile Romans. We've been occupied for 500 years. It's time for us to have our land back. That's what Messiah's gonna do. And then Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the fold of a donkey and then he goes straight to the cross and Jesus says, wait, what just happened? He's dead now. His hope is gone, right? He just goes and gets his fishing pole and goes back out and does the only other thing that he ever knew. He goes fishing, right? That, that, that was it. His hope was gone. And then Easter. All right, that's why we looked at that last week, the glory of Easter Sunday, the Sunday morning of after the crucifixion and some women come back to Jerusalem and they're breathless and they're saying, okay, you're not gonna believe what happened. We went to the tomb, we had all these burial spices and we were just gonna finish and prepare his body for final burial. And there was an angel there And he told us, you're looking for the living among the dead. And he said, you're in the wrong place. He's not here anymore. He's risen. And what happens? Peter and John race to the tomb. And I love the fact that in John's gospel, John says, I got there first. Right? (laughs) Classic man move. I did. I just want the world to know for generations, I got there first. (laughs) But John gets to the tomb, and then here Peter catches up, and he gets there, and John hasn't gone in yet, right? John is just sort of lingering there at the open tomb, and Peter's the one who rushes inside. Why? Because Peter's looking for hope. And for the first time in Peter's life, he was looking in the right place. And that's why he says 35 years ago, 35 years later, we have a living hope through the empty tomb. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Oh, Christian friend, your hope, my hope, should be as full today as the tomb was empty on Easter Sunday. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope, and then he goes on to say, we've been born into an inheritance We have a hope and an inheritance. This inheritance, this is in your notes, this inheritance has your name on it. 
He uses three words. You see there, to describe this inheritance, it's an imperishable inheritance, undefiled and unfading inheritance. What are those three words getting done? The, the upshot of those three words is this inheritance is indestructible. It's an invincible, indestructible inheritance. I've, um, I've met with hopeless people. I, I could tell you many stories of people who I've sat across from in coffee shops or in an office, and they've told me their story, and they don't believe in Jesus, and they're unburdening their lives. The very first conversation I had when I was um, an elder at my previous church in New Orleans, and as the brand new pastor on the staff, I got all the walk-in counseling situations. And since we lived right near a bus stop where you'd have bus tokens, there were a number of people who were homeless who would come in and we would give them bus tokens, we'd give them socks, we'd give them blankets, and, and we'd help them get to where they needed to go. We'd buy them meals. Well, there was one guy who came in one particular day with his son, and his name was Ricky. And this was my very first walk-in counseling meeting. And he sat down, and he was in tears, and there was alcohol on his breath. And he told me a story that I would find out later was on the news, the local news the previous night, that his two children had been taken by his ex-wife from the house, and she brought them, and she was going to go party, so she dropped them off at her dad's house, who was an alcoholic. And this, this father says, I couldn't find my children except for this guy. And the little guy was right there in the office. And he said, through tears, he said, so I went over to her dad's house and I figured that's probably where she brought them. And they weren't there and the boat was missing. So she, he went down to the dead end street right by the, by the lake. And he said, I looked down and I saw the boat had capsized and my two boys and my father-in-law, ex-father-in-law were floating in the water. And we just sat there, both of us. We just sat there and wept. The only sound you could hear in my office was the sound of his little boy running his car across my desk, his toy car. I've sat with people. This guy didn't know Jesus. He didn't have the resources that Christians have to walk through hell on earth. And you could even see the sense of absolute and total despair. On the other hand, I've seen people who have joy in the midst of impossibly difficult circumstances. If you've ever seen or read the works of Johnny Erickson Tata, she's been a quadriplegic since a diving accident in 1967. She was only 17 years old. And I've seen her speak many times, and I got a chance to meet her a few years ago, and she radiates the joy of Jesus. She'll, she'll be in her wheelchair speaking to crowds of people and she'll break forth into song and her face is just beaming with joy. It makes no sense to the world. This is what she said, I can't wait when Jesus comes back and when I see him on that day. And she said this, Jesus, do you see this wheelchair? This is what I'm gonna say to him. Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was, the longer I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. And she goes on to say, and now you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. <laughs> there is this 
there is this defiant joy and hope in this woman's life, and it bears witness to this truth. We have something coming on the other side of suffering. Glory awaits. We have an inheritance. He goes on to say this. It's in your notes. It's being guarded for you. It's being guarded for you. We got in a, a fender bender two weeks ago, and the car was, uh, was totaled. And so over last weekend, my wife and I were shopping for cars online, and we found a great car that works, used car, and it was, but it had low mileage, and we thought, this is perfect, but it, it was in Huntsville. So my wife gets on the phone with the car dealer and the salesman in particular, and she just says, look, if we're going to drive to Huntsville, and be there when, when the bell rings first thing on Monday morning. We need the car to actually be there. We don't want to drive two hours and the car's not there. So he said, the car will be there. And so we got up in faith at 7 o'clock on Monday morning and drove to Huntsville. And we got there at 9 o'clock and there was the car. And we walked up and introduced ourselves. And he said, here's what I did. There's only one key to this car on the grounds. And I hid the key right after we got off the phone. <laughs> and it worked, right? The key could not be found. Nobody could have taken somebody on a test drive because I can't find the key. That maybe is unethical, I'm not sure. But <laughs> the point is, he was guarding the key. It was being watched over carefully so that we weren't hopeless on our way there. We could have some sense of confidence. The car is going to be there when we get there. And it was. The key was guarded for us. But this passage doesn't just say, that this inheritance is being guarded for you. Next point is, you're being guarded for it. Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is, is God guarding your hope, he's guarding you. It's an awesome thing. Look, that's where we struggle, right? We struggle. Am I gonna reach the end? Am I gonna make it to the finish line? Look, the Honda man could guard the key but he couldn't guard our journey on the way to Huntsville. He couldn't do both of those. This is a kind of deep theology alert here. God isn't the Honda man. He can do both. He can work both sides. He can guard what's coming for us, and he can guard us on our way to get it. And he does both. He keeps the inheritance, and he keeps us. It's an awesome thing. That's security. That is total, comprehensive coverage. In the gospel, we have a secure inheritance, friends. Satan can't rob it from you. Cancer can't take it from you. Wheelchairs can't take it from you. Infertility, loneliness, despair, depression can't take it from you. It's being guarded. Your inheritance is being guarded. The scorn of this world can't take it from us. I love this great hymn from one of my historical heroes, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he also wrote another song that's less known, but he writes these words, glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. I almost named this message, Why I Am a Christian. <laughs> Why I Am a Christian, because we have a secure inheritance. And second, because we have persistent joy. 
we have persistent joy. He says, you rejoice, though now for a little while or for a short time, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials or you, you suffer for a short time. There's an expression that's often used these days. I think it's fairly recent. And it's the phrase, a minute. The way that the phrase, a minute, is used. So somebody might say, yeah, we got married back in 1987 and it took us a minute to figure things out. And what they mean by a minute might mean a month or it might mean 30 years. Right, it's, that's the way that that phrase is used, which is perfect for this passage because that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, in this you rejoice, so now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials or you're suffering for a little while, right? This life, this is Peter singing the same song we find in other places in the scriptures that this life is a vapor. We're gonna suffer for a minute. We're going to do battle for a minute. We're going to experience shame and trials and loss and pain and sickness for a minute. And then glory. We won't be here forever. As the psalmist said, and this was the hope of Israel in their embattled days, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver us out of them all. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We, I love how he says, though you've not seen him, you love him. And you, he goes on to say, rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. So by faith, Christian friend, we look to a God who is invisible. But while we look to a God who's invisible, something is coming into our lives. Ballast is coming in, right? This deep running joy is coming in. And it's not a joy that depends on circumstances. Matter of fact, next point in your notes is this. This joy seeks us through pain. And I love that language. That I didn't coin that. I'm borrowing from, from the great Scottish minister born in 1842, George Matheson. Joy seeks us through pain. He, he wrote, and I, I wonder if he was actually reflecting on 1 Peter 1 when he wrote this hymn. And here are the words. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. See how he's personifying joy and what's joy like? It's stubborn I can't close my heart to you. You just keep coming. You just keep barreling in in the midst of this difficulty and pain I'm walking through in my life. This joy, friends, will seek you through pain if you have faith in Jesus Christ. Why would anyone not believe? Why would we live in this world hopeless when we can have this unshakable hope, this joy that finds us in darkness? Next point's this, our trials are proving and refining our faith. Our trials are proving and refining our faith. You know, when everything goes well in the life of the genuine Christian and the nominal Christian, the, the believer and the one who just professes to believe, when everything's going well in those two individuals' lives, it all looks the same, right? There, there's no, you can't tell the difference. But what happens when pain comes? Pain, Peter says, has a way of proving something. Not to God, to us. It proves, it refines, it shows you if you're the real deal, right? My, my, um, my dad has had many qualities, and I've talked about some of them before. Um, 
but he was, <laughs> he was not nature savvy. Let's put it that way. Um, we, we weren't woodsy. We didn't, we didn't camp. We didn't um, hike. We went to the zoo. That was the closest thing that we had to hiking and camping was our trip to the zoo. That was, that was it. Um, but then there was one night, one epic night in the Mason family where we had a close encounter with nature right there in the suburbs of Metairie. So we lived on a street that touched West Esplanade, if you're familiar with West Esplanade. And there's a canal on West Esplanade. And we were this night, this was a really exciting night for us because we were going out to eat. And we almost never went out to eat. So we're like, we're going out to eat. I'm in the back of the station wagon, that, that wood panel, the fake wood panel stuff around the sides. And I'm in the back, sort of that flat area just laying down there. And uh, we come up to West Esplanade and there's just cars moving by. It's, it's night. And up out of the canal comes a small, wet creature. Um, and, and it runs into the street, and it gets clipped by one car, and then it gets up and is angry, and it screams at the next one and gets hit by the next one, and then it's, it's over. And in that moment, my dad somehow yells with excitement, Babe, it's a mink. And so he thought that this small creature was a mink. So he hops out of the car. He throws the thing in park, hops out of the car. My mom is begging him, please, Bill, please don't go get that mink. And dad doesn't hear a word of it because he doesn't see a dead mink in the street. Here's what he sees. <laughs> right? Mom did, <laughs> mom did not have one of those. So dad did not hear any of her complaints or any of her, you know, don't do this. And so he waits, he grabs a towel underneath the, the seat and he, dart, he waits for the traffic, darts out into the street, peels the mink off the ground and throws it into the back of the Chevy with me. So I'm nine inches from the mink and... And now, dinner's ruined, right? The car stinks to high heaven. Dinner is ruined. We're turning around. No special night. We're going to get a valuation on the mink. So we literally, our next door neighbors were the Ruyers. They were outdoorsy. At one point, they had a four-foot alligator that they kept as a pet. So dad's like, they'll know. They'll know that this is a mink. So they come up. Robbie Ruyer comes out. And he's like, Robbie, what do we got here? And that's when we learned there is a big difference between a mink and a ferret, And both of them, they have some similarities. Both of them, when, when pulled out of a canal, wet, and when peeled off the cement, both of them are similar in some ways, but one of them stinks and is priceless, and the other one just stinks. And from nine inches away, I knew which one was which, right? As we were not headed out to eat, I felt that in the full. You know... <laughs> I've never since that day until yesterday, I've never Googled mink and ferret. And I looked it up yesterday. And in dad's defense, they do look alike. So if that's kind of some closure, the resemblance is quite striking. Um, it can be true of us. We, um, we can wonder which one we are. Am I the real deal? Am I a real Christian? Do I genuinely believe in Christ? Am I going to make it to the finish line? Look, there are two sweet gifts that deep suffering brings into our lives. One is, you know God really means it when he says, I'm a very present help in time of trouble. You know that. And two, the second 
sort of left-handed gift of suffering as you cling to him in the midst of day after day is this trial produces a newfound confidence. And what's the confidence? I am a Christian. I do trust him. I'm still worshiping. Why else would I still be praising him in the midst of this disaster area that is my life? I am still worshiping Christ. I must be the real thing. Only his grace could explain this. Hardship is real, but glory awaits. Glory awaits. Daniel 12, verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You know, Romans 8, 17 offers this logic that if we share in Christ's sufferings, we will also share in his glory. And that is the stability of the believers in 64 AD. Is we've been joined to Christ. He suffered and then he was exalted. The pattern's gonna follow for us. We'll suffer now, we'll suffer for a minute, and then we'll be glorious forever. Friends, we have a secure inheritance, we have a persistent joy, and third, we have a great salvation. We have a great salvation. As a child um, growing up in a Christian home, I remember envying Old Testament believers. Because that's where, you know, to a child's mind, that's where all the action is, right? There's swords are swinging. It's, it's not like an invisible palace. You can actually knock on the thing. It's really, it's there and you can see it with your eyes. Moses has a power stick I mean, that's pretty awesome. And where he swings it, I mean, he turns it, and he just lights up Egypt with that thing, right? He t- turns it in the direction of the Red Sea, and it just opens up, right? He's, this is pretty awesome for a kid with an imagination. You're like, I want one of those, right? David's mighty men, they had swords, and they swung them to great effect in the Old Testament, right? And I remember my mom telling me in Ephesians chapter 6, and she's saying, we also have a sword. It's called the sword of the Spirit. And I'm like, okay. So the spirit sword sounds awesome, but do I also get an actual sword, right? Like David's sword, it was an actual, it actually cut things, right? She's like, the Bible is the sword. I was like, okay, that's, I'll grow up and I'll understand that. But for now, like the real sword sounds more awesome. Old Testament believers, I, ended, I envied them. But what, what is Peter saying here? He's saying, they envy us. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. They were looking forward to what would happen in your day. That's what Peter's saying to these Christians. In other words, it's right here in your notes. Prophets didn't comprehend the glory of the story. They were writing beyond their own age. They were writing beyond even their own understanding. My son was working on a, a tough book summary this week as he finishes up his semester in college. And it's a book summary of a great piece of Christian literature. And he asked, Dad, have you read this book? And could we possibly get on the phone and talk about this book? And I found my copy 
of the book, and thankfully I had margin notes on every page of this book, so we just kind of talked on the phone about what's going on in the tricky sections of this literature. And I looked at the margins, and it started coming back to me, page after page. And then, <laughs> and then I looked at certain things that I'd written in the margin and thought, that has no tie to this paragraph. I, I wrote that, and I have no idea what connection that has to this. And yet I'm the one who wrote it. And I think in a sense that's what Peter is saying about Isaiah. Isaiah wrote Isaiah 53 that he would be bruised and crushed and he would bear the transgressions of his people and maybe he comes back to that five years later and says, what does that even mean? Right? I don't fully grasp what I myself am writing 750 years before Jesus shows up in Bethlehem. He didn't even fully understand what he was writing. And Peter's saying, well, of course he didn't. He said, but you do. Why? because you saw Easter weekend. <laughs> you know the Savior's name. You heard the Sermon on the Mount. You heard Jesus pray the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Isaiah said, well, he said, under divine inspiration, that Messiah would be bruised and crushed in order to bear the sins of his people. But Isaiah didn't hear it is finished. You did. They should envy you, he's saying. You have this great salvation and it's rolled out right in front of you in all of its glory. Prophets didn't comprehend the glory of the story. Angels longed to understand it better. Angels longed to look into this. He says to catch a glimpse. I love that phrase. To catch a glimpse of these things. Christian friend, you have something, you've experienced something no angel has experienced. You know what it is to come to Jesus and for him to become your savior. They don't get that, right? And this passage almost, almost positions angels, if you will, peering over the banister of heaven at the unfolding story of redemption, and they're saying, can we see more? Show us, show us more. It's like they're trying to look through a lattice. and well, We want to see more of what this means. They don't comprehend the story of redemption from the inside. You think about that. Yes, it's awesome. Angels can sing holy, holy, holy. But only the church can sing redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's our song. We are the redeemed ones. What about us? Three things. Three things. One, put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in Christ. Do you have this hope? Do you have this secure inheritance? Do you have a joy that's going to find you in the darkest hour that's gonna seek you in pain. If you haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ and believed this good news that he came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross as a substitute for sinners and rose again to give us new life, that's where it all begins. That's the threshold. That's where new life breaks in on us. Our kids used to sing a very simple song called the Gospel Song. Sometimes we still sing it around the piano. It tells the story, Holy God, in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin. By his death, I live 
again. New life, new hope. You trust that story this morning? You step into that story this morning? You follow Jesus and new life, living hope comes running in your direction. It's a glorious thing. Put your hope in Christ too. Cling to hope in Christ. Cling to hope in Christ. The former atheist turned defender of the faith, C.S. Lewis, wrote these words. God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. Lewis went on to say that God whispers to us in our pleasures and he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. He said pain is God's megaphone by which he rouses the world. Third, share your hope in Christ. Share your hope in Christ. First Peter we're going to see, has a deeply evangelistic concern. He's calling these Christians in the first century to live the kind of lives that arrest the attention of a watching world, seeing their whole life as, as gospel mission, as sent ones into their culture. So don't just die with living hope. Share the hope. Don't just die with living hope. Tell it forward. That's what we're going to see here. Tell it Forward, what a perfect day to commission 11 midtermers in all these places in the world. They're telling it forward. They've experienced this hope and out they go all over the world to tell people the hope that they found in Christ. In Lord of the Rings, um, the hordes of armies are battering against the fortress of Helm's Deep and the unthinkable has happened. Helm's Deep has been broken and they're just about to crash in. Defeat is inevitable at this point. And Theoden the king speaks to Aragorn. He kind of looks aside and his hope falters. Theoden's hope falters and he says to Aragorn, what can men do against such reckless hate? And Aragorn answers back and he says, ride out and meet them. Saying, Let, let's not die in this fortress. Let's go out swinging. Let's mount a horse and break through that door and take it to them. Ride out and meet them. Look, it's 1 Peter chapter 1. It's 64 AD. Rome is on fire. Persecution is coming. Peter and Paul will be dead in three years. Persecution is coming. Emperor Nero is hanging Christians from light posts, setting them on fire. That's... That's what's happening out there, right? And Peter isn't saying, woe is me, and complaining about not being accepted by the culture. What's Peter saying? He's saying, ride out. Ride out and meet them. You have a living hope. You have an indestructible hope. You have an inheritance that's waiting. Suffering is here. Glory is coming. Can this world see our living hope? Not us pursuing passing pleasures, abiding hope that's anchored in the goodness of God. Can they see that in our life? Listen, if we don't exhibit to this world a life that is above this world, a new possibility, right? Something that's inside of us, something that is giving us joy and peace and strength in a situation that looks absolutely terrible, there isn't going to be any curiosity. 
There isn't going to be anything for the people to ask about when they look at us. They're not going to ask, what's the defense for the hope that's in you? They're going to say, you look just like me, both hopeless. But if there's a sense that we have real but invisible wealth, real but invisible hope, power this world doesn't know, then they'll get curious. Here's how that great hymn from John Newton, the last stanza is this. Savior, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Church, there's another way to win the world. We've tried loud. Let's try hope. 